Guess what I am for the nativity? I'm a classic one. Classic role, is it? Classic part? Yeah. Um, Joseph? No. Uh, one of the three wise men? No. One of the innkeepers? No. Um, but it's a classic part? Yeah. Okay. Um, you tell me then, because... I'm door holder number three, I'll be holding doors. That's amazing. Holding doors for who? Um, probably um, Joseph and Mary. Oh my gosh, were you pleased when they said that? Yeah. And what did you do? And I was like, I'm a door holder, get in there, let's go, yes. Whoa. And, and, and maybe because there's no room, I'll probably be just low, be like, just coming in and then I'll just slam them in, slam the door in their face. <laughs> Is that your star role? I'll probably, maybe. I'll probably be dressed up as a door. I don't think you're going to be a door. I think you're going to be a door holder. No, I'll have to wear like brown. Really? Yeah, probably. Excellent. That's well, that's really smart, Milo. I sure hope that you are bringing the same joy and the same enthusiasm of Milo to this Christmas. Whether your heart is full and you easily join your voices with the choirs of the angels, or whether you, like Mary, are quietly pondering, or like the wise men, you're curiously searching and looking, or whether, like the shepherds, you bow down in worship. Whatever role that it is, even if you feel like you are door holder number three, get in there. Whatever role it is that you feel like that you're in the drama of the Christmas story, we're so glad to get to share it, to tell it, and to retell this story over and over again. But I need to warn you that there's a danger. And the danger, particularly I think in a space like this, is that when you say this story year after year, again and again, and the animals and the songs and all of it pull together, we can forget, we can forget that Christmas isn't just a story. There was a study that was done in the United Kingdom a couple of years ago, and in this study, they determined that out of the people that they polled in Britain, that 40% of the people that they polled didn't believe that Jesus was even a real person. And that 70% didn't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, which, as an aside, is a little ironic because in the year 2023, the University of Cambridge published the fact that scientists have been able to genetically engineer fruit flies for what they refer to as parthenogenesis. In other words, we now have the capacity to make fruit flies create virgin birth which is why one Australian author, I love it, and says it the best, he puts it like this. He says, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. That might be all the gospel that that person needed to hear tonight. <laughs> and so tonight, I want to take you deep into that original Christmas miracle and we're going to do so in an unconventional way, not through one of the stories or one of the verses that you know so well. I want to take you into one of the last letters of the Bible that was ever written. 
It was composed by the youngest disciple of Jesus, and he's getting towards the end of his life. And while he's getting towards the end of his life, he's realizing that as the stories get told year after year, as things are passing down to that next generation, he needs to remind them of something critical, that this wasn't just a story, that it really happened. One commentator on the passage that we're about to read together said that the language that you look at here is the language of a first century courtroom deposition. And I've highlighted those words as we're gonna say this together, we're gonna say this scripture together in unison. So lift up your voices with me and say our Christmas passage today and notice this as an eyewitness account. Say it with me. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Heard, seen, touched, proclaimed, appeared. This is not the kind of language of once upon a time. This is the language of putting your hand on the Bible and raising your hand and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is an account of John reminding his readers and the generations of us that would follow that they heard and they seen and they participate in something that really happened, that Christmas is not a story, it's history. And that means that you and I can never look at reality the same way again. When I have a little moment of trivia, I want you to turn to somebody next to you, no cheating, no looking at your phones. I want you to answer this question. What significant event, more specifically an invention, what invention changed the world in 1827? Turn to you, somebody next to you and try to guess what invention changed the world. Okay, let's see how many of you got it right. The answer is the photograph, the camera. And who would imagine that we would all be carrying high-definition cameras now just within our pockets? I learned this kernel of truth at a world-class art museum in Northwest Arkansas. That's right, you heard it right. World-class museum of art in Northwest Arkansas. It's called Crystal Bridges. And it looks like it's something that's out of Norway as opposed to out of the Southeast. I wanna show you the inside of what the cafeteria or the cafe looks like. I mean, this is an amazing piece of property that has incredible pieces of art in it. And in this exhibit, they were talking about the impact of the photograph on different pieces of arts. Now, I didn't realize that this was gonna be a Christmas Eve sermon illustration. I was paying attention to the exhibit. I wasn't taking pictures of the art. So I had to go back and take pictures that might illustrate this for you. And so I wanna show you what a landscape painting 
would look like typically in the 1700s. By the time you get into the 1800s, this might be what a painting looks like. Or if you were to rewind a little bit, here's a famous portrait of what was seen in history, the Mona Lisa. And by the time you get 100 years into with the invention of the photograph, this might be what a portrait looks like. This is not just about technique. This is not just about brushstroke. This is not just about a change in artistic style. What it said on the walls of that exhibit as you were walking through it was this phrase that I'll never forget. It said, a new way of seeing. And in a similar way, I think that Christmas is a new birth, a new beginning that causes us to have a whole new way of seeing. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He puts it like this famously. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because I see it, I see everything else. In other words, what happens at Christmas with Jesus coming to earth is not just a rock-solid event that occurred but it changes our view of everything around us. And the three key words that John brings up in this passage that he will revisit over and over again in all of his other writings that I want us to have a whole new way of seeing are three things. A new way of seeing life, a new way of seeing friendship, and a new way of seeing joy. And so let's talk first about how the gospel, how Christmas gives a whole different way of seeing life. There's lots of different words in the New Testament for life, meaning different things. There's the word for biology. There's the word for psychology. And then there's a special set of words that are reserved for a different kind of life, what we often translate as eternal life. Now, when I graduated from seminary with the most arrogant title of a degree ever, a master of divinity. And if you would have pulled me aside and asked me, what is eternal life? I would have told you that it was a life that goes on and on and on into the future. And then in 1999, at least one person gets that, what I'm saying right now. In 1999, Vic Pence handed me a copy of a book by an author by the name of Dallas Willard that was called The Divine Conspiracy. And in that book, it completely rocked my world on my understanding of life. This is what it says. It says, does Jesus only enable me to make the cut when I die? It's good to know that when I die, all will be well, but is there any good news for life? If I had to choose, I would rather have a car that runs than good insurance on the one that doesn't. Can I not have both? In other words, when Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, it, he, he's talking about that we want to have a life that runs, not just insurance for the life that is to come. In other words, life can't just be about the duration or the quantity of your life in mind. It also has to be about the quality of life. It's one thing to live forever. It's another thing to have a forever kind of life. Which leads me to why we handed each and every one of you a blue journal when you walked in today. And if you open that journal and you flip through it, you will see that it is completely blank. And the reason that it's blank is because we're inviting you to partner with us this year to experience 
an entirely different kind of life. We're hoping that you and I will start to live out of the overflow of the kind of abundant and eternal living that is actually promised within the good news of the gospel. Next year, when we get to Christmas, we'll have our newly renovated campus, and you can imagine in the course of the last year that I have spent a ton of time walking people through the plans, showing them pictures, walking them and giving them a tour of the church to be able to see what we are working on. And a lot of the times, people are like, tell me more about what it's going to look like. Now, I received professional campaign counsel. What I wanted to say when we got into the nitty-gritty of these conversations is, I'll tell you what the church is going to look like, but you should also tell me, what are you going to look like in a year? Are you going to be more angry or are you going to be less angry? Are you going to be more kind or are you going to be less kind? Are you going to be more gentle or are you going to be less gentle? Are you going to be more patient or are you going to be less patient? Because God not only cares about what happens to us, he infinitely cares about what is happening inside us and through us, that eternal kind of life. I have a friend from seminary who, when you would ask him, how are you doing, he would be like, same, but grumpier. And some of you laugh because you think it's not you. And you might wonder, like, well, I don't know if I'm going to be angrier next year. I don't know if I'm going to be more patient next year. I don't know if I'm going to be more loving next year. You may not be measuring it, but your spouse can. Your friends know it. Your coworkers know it. Everybody else around us know what kind of person that we are becoming, what kind of person we are turning into And so the invitation is for us to go into a partnership together. We are going to go on a process. You know, you vastly overestimate what you can do in a day, and you vastly underestimate what you can do in a year. And so next year, we're inviting you into this partnership and this journey. There's going to be podcasts. We're putting together world-class faculty of people like John Ortberg and Ruth Haley Barton. We're inviting next month John Mark Comer to come and to share with us in person. We're gonna have messages and experiments and groups and we are inviting you in to go on a journey. What will your journal contain and are you going to be training for a different kind of living? Listen, next year is an election year for the presidency. Is your soul ready for that? Mine isn't. And so let's train. Let's train to spend time with Jesus, to become more like Jesus, and to learn how to do the very things that he did. One more Dallas Willard quote, certainly God is in the business of getting people into heaven, but God's primary aim is getting heaven into us. Eternal kind of living. And so Christmas in the gospel changes the way that we see life But the gospel also changes the way that we see friendship. Did you hear the announcement that earlier this year that the Surgeon General said that the greatest health risk in our society, it's not cancer, it's not heart disease, it's not obesity. The single greatest health risk in our society is isolation. It's loneliness. It's an epidemic of despair of us feeling disconnected. And as your pastor, you give me a front row seat to the quiet and persistent pain that is in this room and that is in our world. Rebecca McLaughlin is an author, and she moved to the Boston area and experienced the 
loneliness of feeling disconnected. And then she realized that as a Christian, she was asking the wrong question. That as a Christian, instead of asking the question, who will love me? She needed to be asking the question, who can I love? For you see, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so now I have loved you. Now you can love one another. The Apostle Paul will say, as Christ welcomed you, you now can welcome one another. And so what we discover in the churchy word for this that John uses and explodes in meeting in other places that I've called friendship is it's, in its ancient term, it's called fellowship. You and I are invited into the fellowship, the reality of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you and I as a part of a Christian fellowship, we are never alone, that we are always swept up into the mystery of God's presence, and because we are loved, we can reach out in love for others. You've probably heard the phrase, if you want a friend, be a friend. That particularly applies to us in Christ, that the solution for the loneliness epidemic that is before us is not, no longer trying to live out of the insecurity of will someone love me, but out of the outward posture of who can I love. Later, John will write in this very same letter that we looked at tonight, Friends, let us love one another, for love is of God. For anyone who loves is born of God, knows God, for God is love. That God's love was revealed among us in this way, that he sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the opportunity before us. To be able to be the healing presence of Christ for our own lives as well as the sake of our community. Who can I love? So the gospel reorients the way, and Christmas retells us how we can see life in a whole new way, and we can see friendship in a whole new way, but we can also see joy in an entirely different way of seeing. I want to show you a picture of a modern-day prophet, a man by the name of Lee Strobel, who loves to tell the truth. And he's written lots of different books, but back when he was in the 1970s, Lee Strobel was a hardened atheist investigative journalist working for the Chicago Tribune. And he was doing a series of articles on Chicago's neediest people, and he zeroed in on this one family called the Delgados. The Delgados was a grandmother who was in her 60s and was riddled with daily pain of arthritis so that she couldn't hold a job. And she had two grandkids that she was taking care of. Their apartment burned to the ground and they didn't have any insurance. They had very few possessions anyway. And so the Delgados moved to a different apartment and by the time Lee got to go visit them, Lee went there in such a way where he couldn't believe how barren and empty it was. There was no rug on the floor. There was no furniture anywhere. There was a handful of rice. There was two different sets of clothing for each of them. The two daughters had to walk a half a mile in the Chicago cold to school. They had one light gray sweater between the two of them. And they would, one child, walk with the sweater on for the first half of the walk. And then the other child, as they would trade, 
would have the other opportunity to wear the sweater. And yet what was amazing to Lee when he got into that barren apartment was that he noticed that this family talked frankly, boldly, openly about their love for God, that God had not abandoned them, and their deep admiration for Jesus Christ. Lee didn't believe any of that stuff, but here's what he noticed. Here was a family who had nothing and yet was full, and he had everything, and yet he was as empty as that bare apartment. So he finished his assignment, he wrote his article. This is actually the article that he wrote, and then he decided to go back and to visit them on a slow news day in December 24th. He got a car, he went to go visit them, and he could not believe the transformation that had taken place in the house. It was full, rugs, furniture, food. Um, the house was overflowing with Christmas presents, even money, and and just as quickly as that stuff was coming in, because people had been inspired by his article to care for this family, they were being a conduit, and they were sending generously out that stuff because they knew lots of people who were just as needy as they were, and they were making sure that they shared that Christmas. And they kept saying, the grandmother kept saying, this is wonderful, this is great, we, this is purely a gift. We didn't do anything to deserve this. But she says, it's not the greatest of gifts. The greatest of gifts comes tomorrow, and that's Jesus, that's Christmas. God is the greatest of gifts. Lee Strobel didn't leave that apartment a Christian, but Lee Strobel left that apartment haunted by the inner difference and the reality and the joy of that family versus himself. And when he brought to bear his investigative journalist of skills and he talked about the birth, the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he found the foundation of the intellectual credibility of not only what happened at Christmas, but what happens beyond and through Easter and through the church, when he found that he could stand on that, then all of a sudden, Lee gave his life to Christ. And he has spent the rest of his days trying to help us to understand that while you may be thinking that you're investigating God or others, the reality is that God is investigating you. Choose your miracle, my friends. Are you going to choose the miracle of an empty and voidless and godless situation, or are you going to embrace the miracle of joy and of laughter and of love? Are you gonna choose the miracle of a different view of life and life everlasting, but a different kind of quality of life, a forever kind of life? Are you gonna choose the miracle of what it means for you and I to not just be people who are insecure about our love, but are reaching out in love and concern for others? Are you gonna choose the miracle and the opportunity for you and I to be a part of a community and a movement that has a joy that is above any situation in any circumstance? My friends, this is an entirely new way of seeing. Christmas is real. It happened, and because it happened, we can never see reality the same way again.
It's not just a story. Christmas is so much more. And so will you pray with me? Our loving God and Father, I pray for the people within the sound of my voice right now who have received the eyewitness testimony of that youngest disciple and have been encouraged and challenged by that all of those centuries ago, you came to be near to us. Forgive us, O oh God, for our complacency, for being the same yet grumpier year after year. And will you give us a vision for eternal life? And will you help us to become different kinds of people and that we would be a part of a grand movement of friendship and fellowship and joy in a world that so desperately needs your good news. And so, God, reorient our sight in this room right now. Help us to leave this theater seeing a whole new way. And this we pray with great anticipation on the holiest of nights as we fall to our knees in praise and thanksgiving to you. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said.